Hello, and welcome to the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. My name is Rebecca Larson, owner of TudorsDynasty.com, and you have found my podcast. On my Facebook page, I decided to make November the month of Katherine Howard. Every day I plan to share at least one post, video, or image on the subject. November 1540 is when things began to unravel for the young Catherine. The timing of this podcast couldn't be better. The story of Catherine Howard intertwines with many other notable figures of the time, but none more than Anne of Cleves and Thomas Cromwell. We'll start with Catherine's childhood and attempt to chronologically move forward through time until her execution in 1542. After writing the script for this podcast, I realized this deserves two parts. This part, part one, will start from Catherine's childhood up to her marriage to Henry VIII. Part two, I'll cover her downfall. That's the part of her life that definitely deserves a lot of attention. Before we get too deep into this podcast, I need to take a minute, as I do every week, to thank those who have supported my podcast by becoming a subscriber or patron on Patreon. Because of your monthly donations, I am able to continue doing these podcasts. All the money that I receive helps to pay for the costs involved in running my website, podcast, and gathering the resources I need to ensure you get accurate information. This week, I'd like to shout out to Katie F. for becoming a patron. Thank you so much, Katie. You're the only one in the last week who has become a patron, and I want you to know I really appreciate it. If you are interested in becoming a member of this amazing group of people who I consider my best friends and family, you can do so by going to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com and click on Become a Patron. For as little as $1 per month, you can ensure that I continue to do a podcast anywhere from two to four times per month. The more money I raise, the more time I will spend to give you a weekly podcast. With all that being said, welcome back to those who have been listeners from the beginning, hello to those who came in somewhere in the middle, and to those of you who are new to this podcast, welcome. All right, it's time to get started. Sit back, relax, turn up the volume, and prepare to be transported back in time to the life of Catherine Howard, fifth wife of Henry VIII. There isn't a whole lot of information about Catherine's childhood, so I'll tell you what we do know. Catherine Howard, according to author Gareth Russell, was born around 1522 at Lambeth to Edmund Howard and Joyce Culpepper. Joyce Culpepper was married twice, first to Ralph Lee when she was 12 years old, and the couple had five children together. When Joyce's husband died around 1509, Joyce became a wealthy widow. She also inherited land or money from her father after his death, but I do not have a date for that. Joyce's second husband was Edmund Howard. The couple were about the same age when they married. What it came down to was the fact that Joyce had money and Edmund Howard needed it. Joyce's mother never trusted her son-in-law and they tried everything in their power to make sure Edmund did not have access to their money or land. We'll delve more into Edmund in a moment. The five half-siblings Catherine had by her mother's first marriage were John, Ralph, Isabel, Joyce, and Margaret Lee. We'll hear about Isabel a little later on in the story. Catherine's full siblings were Henry, Charles, Margaret, and Mary. Joyce Culpepper died around 1528 or 1529 and left behind a husband and ten children. Edmund Howard was the third surviving son of the second Duke of Norfolk. He wasn't always the pathetic man he later became. 
and one time he was said to have the athletic abilities of his brothers, but that he lacked their social intelligence. As a young boy, Edmund spent time at the court of Henry VII as a page boy, a great place for the third son of the Duke of Norfolk to start his career. At 40 years old, Edmund married Joyce Culpepper. This was his first marriage, and we've already discovered it was Joyce's second. When Catherine Howard was born, her father Edmund could not have been thrilled to have another daughter, another dowry to provide for a marriage. You see, Edmund had a problem with money. He didn't have any. He often borrowed from friends and didn't pay them back. When Joyce died, Edmund didn't have the money to support this large household. The elder daughters of his late wife, Isabella and Margaret, as well as his own children, Charles, Henry, George, Catherine, Margaret, and Mary, were all still living in his house. Catherine's eldest half-brothers, John and Ralph, had moved out when Catherine was a small child. John had inherited a manor in Stockwell from his grandfather, and Ralph had a trust fund to help pay for his schooling to become a lawyer in London. Catherine's half-sister, Joyce, was also married and out of the house. Keeping all of this in mind, when Edmund Howard wrote a letter to Woolsey asking for financial assistance, he mentioned that he had 10 children to support, when we now know that he definitely did not. As author Gareth Russell states, quote, debt seldom stimulates a compulsion towards honesty, end quote. Isn't that the truth? Edmund Howard, being of the Howard clan, behaved as though he resented being from such a notable family. He claimed that his money problems could not be solved by getting another job. The thought of doing so would bring great reproach and shame to him in his blood. So Edmund believed getting another job to help pay for his expenses would bring shame on his family. Interesting. Like being in debt wouldn't bring a greater shame on your family. After the death of his first wife, Joyce, he married again to the not-so-kind but wealthy widow, Dorothy Troyes. We know she wasn't so kind when we look back at the letter that Edmund wrote to Honor Grenville, Lady Lyle. If you follow my website and Facebook page, you already know this story, but for the rest of you, get ready to laugh. Quote, Madame, so it is, I have this night after midnight taken your medicine, for the which I heartily thank you, for it hath done me much good, and hath caused the stone to break, so that now I void much gravel. But for all that, your said medicine hath done me little honesty, for it made me piss my bed this night, for the which my wife hath sore beaten me, and saying it is children's parts to bepiss their bed. End quote. Okay, so let's talk about his wife Dorothy and the fact that Edmund states in the letter that she beat him and scolded him for wetting the bed. The poor guy had kidney stones and accidentally wet the bed. What kind of wife would treat him that way? On the other hand, I get the impression that Edmund liked to play the victim in his life, especially if we look at the times that he complained about being a Howard and how hard it was to be part of such a prestigious family. Luckily for Edmund, his marriage to Dorothy did not last long since there is evidence that she made out her will in 1530. When Edmund's niece, Anne Boleyn, was Queen of England, she was able to assist her hapless uncle by getting him a position as Comptroller of Calais. The timing was perfect for Edmund to leave the island and cross the channel to get away from his debt collectors. It was at some point after Edmund got the position in Calais that his household was broken up in England and his daughter, Margaret, was married to Thomas Arundel, while his stepdaughter, Isabel, was married to Sir Edward Bainton. The rest of the children who were still in his household were at the age where they could continue their education in another family's household. Catherine and her brother Henry were invited to become wards of the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk. Edmund Howard married again for the third time in 1537 to a lady by the name of Margaret Mundy. Then, in 1539, before he could see his daughter become Queen of England, Edmund Howard died. 
Imagine how his life would have improved. Or maybe he would have gotten himself into hot water and been executed. We'll never know. Here's another quote by Edmund that sums up his life. Quote, if I were a poor man's son, I might dig and delve for my living. End quote. Instead, Edmund found himself with few friends and beaten by the world. Catherine Howard arrived at Chesworth House, south of Horsham, in 1531, and her life would never be the same. Most have assumed that Catherine was not educated in the household of the Dowager Duchess. However, it does appear that she was able to read and write. Catherine was most definitely better educated than most English women, but because she could read and write does not mean that she was educated, especially not like her cousin, Anne Boleyn. The Dowager Duchess had many young women in her household. If you compare it to today's standards, it would be similar to having a handful or two of teenage girls together in a large room. The girls were actually housed in an attic dormitory, or maiden's chamber, as it was called, while the young men were housed in a separate area. It would only be a matter of time before trouble ensued. Such was the case in this household. There were also young men in the household. We all know what teenage hormones are like, so it's understandable that at night, one of the girls, whether it was Catherine or another girl, would sneak into the bedroom of the Dowager Duchess and steal the key to the dormitory. Once they received it, they could unlock the door to allow the young men to enter their room. Now, before we go too far into that part of the story, let's discuss Catherine's so-called relationship with her music tutor, Henry Mannix. Mannix and Catherine were flirtatious with one another, and it is believed that the two had secret meetings with one another. There was kissing between the two, and Mannix later said that they had not slept together, but that he had seen her private parts. It is believed that Mannix fell in love with the young Howard girl, who was much above his own standing, and that others had noticed. For Catherine, being with Mannix made her feel grown up and protected. She thought she loved him as well. Unfortunately for the couple, one of Catherine's roommates, Mary Lassell, approached Mannix and told him his relationship with Catherine was inappropriate. What she didn't say is that she also had a crush on him, so there may have been some jealousy on her part as well. Mary warned Mannix that he would never be able to marry Catherine because she came from such a noble house and the marriage would never be approved. Mannix, the pig that he was, responded by saying, quote, Marry her? My designs are not quite so honorable, and from the kisses the girl allows me, I shall soon achieve my purpose, end quote. Mary quickly informed Catherine of what he had said, and Catherine was disgusted. Catherine confronted Mannix, and he responded by smoothing her over with something to the effect that he can't control his feelings around her. Catherine, surely flattered, continued her so-called relationship with Mannix. Eventually, the relationship ended. Catherine realized there were other men in the household who wanted her attention, and she liked it. It's possible that the relationship ended after the Dowager Duchess cut the two alone. Catherine received two or three blows from her grandmother, and the couple were told that they should never be alone again. Later, in the interrogations of Catherine Howard, she had this to say about Mannix. Quote, At the flattering and fair persuasions of Mannix, being but a young girl, I suffered him in sundry times to handle and touch the secret parts of my body, which neither became me with honesty to permit nor him to require. End quote. It wasn't long after the relationship with Mannix ended that Catherine fell in love with Francis Derham, a more serious candidate for her hand since he, unlike Mannix, had sufficient status and wealth to marry Catherine. Derham was an usher for the Dowager Duchess, and like Mannix, was older than Catherine. Derham frequently visited the girls' dormitory at night and most definitely consummated his relationship with the young Catherine. 
Darum always claimed that he considered them married or pre-contracted. They called one another husband and wife. This, by the standards of the 16th century, was enough. Others had heard them call each other by those titles as well and were aware that they were sleeping together. Author David Lodes believes the couple's relationship lasted from 1537 to 1539. While contraception at the time was primitive, Catherine clearly had a good grasp on how to prevent pregnancy. Henry Mannix became very jealous of the couple and wrote an anonymous letter to the Dowager Duchess to inform her of the goings-on at night in the dormitory. After reading the note, the Dowager Duchess caught the lovebirds together and was furious. Get out of here. Darum departed shortly after to Ireland with an understanding that he would wed Catherine when he returned to England. Little did he know that by the time he returned, everything would have changed for the couple. While Francis was in Ireland, Catherine moved closer to court, staying at her uncle's house, the Duke of Norfolk. This is when she met Thomas Culpepper. Thomas was a gentleman of the King's Privy Chamber, and he was also a distant cousin to Catherine through her mother. His position at court was considered very important since it allowed him personal access to the King. Catherine fell deeply in love with Thomas. Eventually, Catherine was welcomed to court as a lady-in-waiting to the Queen. It was while she was a lady-in-waiting to Anne of Cleves in March 1540 that she caught the eye of King Henry VIII. The King had been invited to dinner at the home of Bishop Gardiner in the River Thames, and he graciously accepted. It was while the King was watching the dancers that he noticed the young, auburn-haired Catherine Howard smiling, laughing, and dressed in the French fashion. It wasn't long after the event that Henry began showing more interest in Catherine. Once the king eyed you, there was no going back. There was nothing she could do but accept his advances. At this time, she was still in love with Thomas Culpepper, but adored the attention that the king gave her, along with the prospect of becoming Queen of England. The king was attracted to Catherine's beauty and youthfulness, and of course, he believed she was a virgin, unlike his current wife, Anne of Cleves. Henry and Anne of Cleves continued playing the part of husband and wife for the first few months of their marriage, with only the king's closest advisors knowing his true intentions. Thomas Cromwell had been Henry VIII's closest advisor since the downfall and death of his predecessor, Cardinal Wolsey. Cromwell had the king's ears in all matters and pretty much was running the show. When the Cleves' marriage backfired, Cromwell was rightfully concerned about his position with the king. However, in April 1540, Henry raised Cromwell to the earldom of Essex. He also created him Lord Great Chamberlain. From an outsider's perspective, this looked as though Cromwell was safe from the wrath of the king. The plan was already in motion because Henry wanted out of his marriage with Anne so he could be with Catherine Howard. And if Cromwell could not do it, then he would find someone who could. But in the meantime, he'd make Cromwell believe he was still his closest advisor. This is how Henry VIII worked. By the 24th of April, 1540, Henry gave Catherine Howard land seized from a felon, and a few weeks later, she received an expensive gift of quilted sarconet. It is possible that their relationship was consummated around this time because this is when Henry was urgent to annul his marriage to Anne of Cleves. With Catherine, the king believed he was getting all that he couldn't have with Anne of Cleves. The end of favor came for Cromwell when he was arrested on the 10th of June, 1540. The scene played out as Cromwell was leaving the Parliament building to head to dinner. A sudden gust of wind blew his hat from his head and it fell to the ground. 
Normally, when a gentleman lost his hat, it was customary for everyone to remove their hats as a sign of respect. When Cromwell bent down to pick up his hat, no man showed him the respect that was warranted, at which Cromwell replied dryly, quote, A high wind indeed must it have been to blow my bonnet off and keep all yours on, end quote. The men around him pretended not to hear what he said and carried on to dinner. During dinner, no man spoke to Thomas Cromwell. Once dinner was over, all the lords proceeded to the council chamber where they would carry out their daily business. When Cromwell finally reached the chamber, all the men were already seated, at which he said, quote, You are in a great hurry, gentlemen, to get seated. End quote. Once again, his words were ignored, and as he went to sit in his chair, Thomas Howard, the Duke of Norfolk, yelled, quote, Cromwell, do not sit there. That is no place for thee. Traitors do not sit amongst gentlemen. End quote. At this point, Cromwell was furious with the treatment and said, quote, I am not a traitor. End quote. And as he spoke those words, the captain of the guard entered the chamber and arrested him. The arrest of Thomas Cromwell was a shock to many. He had been the king's closest advisor for many years. Unfortunately for Cromwell, his downfall was greeted with much happiness Yay! all over England, for there were those who believed the absence of Rome in their life and the dissolution of the monasteries were solely his fault. They felt that he finally got what was coming to him. For Henry VIII, it allowed him to continue to move forward with his divorce from Anne of Cleves, the awful marriage that was Cromwell's idea. Now Henry was a step closer to being with Catherine Howard. In the early hours of the 6th of July, 1540, the king sent a messenger to inform Anne of Cleves of his concerns about their marriage. The following day, after they were summoned to Westminster, the convocations of York and Canterbury, among other leading clergy, declared the marriage null and void after hearing Gardiner speak against the validity of the king's marriage. That very day, a group of men appointed by the king went to Anne of Cleves to inform her that her marriage was no more and that henceforth she would be called the king's sister. Now that his marriage to Anne of Cleves was over, Henry VIII was free to marry Catherine Howard. On the 28th of July, at the mildly obscure Oldlands Palace, Henry and Catherine were married. Some believe that the location of the wedding and the smaller court presence was due to the fact that Catherine was pregnant. This was most definitely untrue. Catherine was very petite and her small frame would have made a pregnancy obvious. Those who dressed her would have noticed and most definitely gossiped because it seems that's all the ladies did at court. King Henry was obsessed with his young bride. He was so turned on by Catherine that he could barely keep his hands off her. After the failed consummation with Anne of Cleves, this is exactly what Henry needed. Now he behaved as a teenage boy obsessed with his girlfriend. This would prove to the court that he was the same young Henry he always was. Or so he believed. How had Henry not noticed that his wife was not a virgin? This is something I've often wondered. Clearly, Catherine had experience in the bedchamber. Was she smart enough to act the part of a virgin? Or was Henry so enamored that he overlooked such an obvious thing? He believed Catherine to be his rose without a thorn, so my guess is that he was ignorant to the truth. On the same day that Henry and Catherine married, Thomas Cromwell was executed. Thank you for joining me this week for the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. We'll end this podcast with some of Thomas Cromwell's final words and return here next week for the rest of Catherine Howard's story. See you next week. Gentlemen, you should all take warning from me, who was, as you know, a poor man made by the king into a great gentleman. And I, not contented with that, not with having the kingdom at my orders, presumed to a still higher state. My pride has brought its punishment.